Do not lose heart in doing good, for in due time you will reap if you do not grow weary. Galatians 6.9 The life of a Christian was never meant to be a life of ease. It's often difficult to see through the fog of suffering all the way till the end of our lives and on to glory. This evening we'll be in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. The life of a Christian is like running a race up a mountain and all of our joints are screaming at us and throbbing in pain and yet we cannot give up just because it's too foggy. Sometimes as Christians, we don't see the finish line ahead of us. It's, it seems as if it's too far away. There's too much work to be done. It's, it's not, we don't have enough strength. And in fact, the finish line is only just ahead. It's just a mile away. We simply can't see it because of the fog. And as Christians, we cannot lose heart. We cannot give up now. We cannot give up all the work that's been done on, for the sake of Christ. We cannot give, give up before we get to the finish line. We need to keep pressing on. Luke has been talking about what genuine faith in Christ looks like. He's, ta- he's teaching us that through the teachings of Christ, what genuine faith looks like. A person with genuine faith uses his resources to advance God's purposes in this life and set his eyes on the heavenly treasures, Luke chapter 16. A person of genuine faith avoids leading others into sin, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, and is willing to forgive, verses 3 and 4. A person of genuine faith has his eyes focused on the right object, Jesus Christ, verses 5 and 6. And a person of genuine faith recognizes his indebtedness to God, that we're not the ones who should be expecting thanks from God. God should be the one expecting thanks from us, verses 7 to 19. Tonight we're going to see that a person of genuine faith sees the connection between the king and his kingdom and that a person of genuine faith is prepared for that coming kingdom. So let me read this passage for us beginning in verse 20. This is the Word of God. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look here, look there. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building... But on that day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out, and likewise the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. 
I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to Him, Where, Lord? And He said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Christ is teaching first the Pharisees and then the disciples that we must be prepared for coming judgment. First thing that we see here in verses 20 and 21 is that genuine faith sees the relationship between the king and the kingdom. Jesus makes a puzzling statement here in verses 20 and 21. In order for us to understand it, we need to consider His audience. Notice verse 20, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, He answered them. So the audience of Jesus here in verses 20 and 21 is the Pharisees. He's responding to a question that they're asking probably in a condemnatory way about where this kingdom is. You know, Jesus, if you've been saying all along that the kingdom of God is at hand, where is this kingdom? I mean, how weak can this kingdom be? I mean, you being the king of a kingdom, what kind of a kingdom is this? You were born in a stable. You grew up in a family that was far from wealthy. And as an adult, you don't even own any property. You have very few possessions. And we're supposed to believe that you are the king? You see, for the ordinary Jew, the Messiah was supposed to come with great pomp and circumstance and overpower His enemies. But where is that great power? Where is your kingdom? And Jesus responds to their unbelief here in verses 20 and 21. Notice what He says at the end of verse 20. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Literally, it could be translated, the kingdom of God is not coming with observation. He doesn't mean that there are no signs prior to His arrival. We're going to see that in verse 24, that there are signs prior to His arrival. Just like the lightning lights up one part of the sky and then flashes to the rest of the sky, so is, this, so is Christ's coming. I think what He means here in verse 20 is that it doesn't come through an observable process. It doesn't come through observation in that way. That's why He's been giving the parables of the kingdoms. Uh, the kingdom, and comparing it, remember, to the mustard seed and the yeast, which the idea of that is it starts out really small and it's imperceptible, its growth, and yet over time, what happens is you have this huge tree or this huge, uh, this huge loaf of bread. There is an invisible and imperceptible growth of the citizens of the kingdom that will become clear to all one day that Christ is the king of a great kingdom. Pharisees were looking for Christ to rise to power if He was who He said He was, the Messiah. They were looking for this Old Testament kingdom. Do you remember how the Old Testament kingdom rose to power? We we could actually chart it. We could see it tangibly. That it, it started out relatively small under King Saul. And then it rose in King David's time. And then during the time of King Solomon, it was at its pinnacle. It was a vast and wealthy kingdom. And so, in the Old Testament, you could see its rise to power. The Pharisees are thinking, hey, where is it? Where is it? We don't see your rise to power. There's no, there's no sign of this kingdom. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't come through an observable process. That's not how the, the kingdom comes. And the reason that they didn't need to look for observable signs of the coming kingdom was because the king was standing right in front of them. Look at verse 21. 
that he says, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, some people use this verse to prove that the kingdom is partially here now. That is, the millennial kingdom is partially here now. And the way that it's here is that it's in our hearts. And they use this verse as their proof text. It says, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But I think we can quickly dismiss that um, by just recognizing the audience to whom Jesus is speaking, right? He's speaking to unbelievers, generally speaking, right? Obviously, we have some Pharisees that come to Christ, but generally speaking, the Pharisees are unbelievers. The King James Version has the kingdom of God is within you. I think this is a poor translation uh, in this case, and, and I think it's, it's a poor translation in this case because Jesus is talking to Pharisees who are lar- largely unbelievers and skeptics, and He would not say that the kingdom of God is in you, unbeliever. Jesus is saying the same thing that John the Baptist and He had been saying for the past three years. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did He mean by that? He meant that it's, it's near. If you will receive the King of the kingdom, you can enjoy the benefits of the kingdom. And I think He's saying the same thing here And I think this translation here in the New American Standard in this verse is a good one. It says, For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Not within you, but in your midst. It's it's at hand. It's right in front of you. And if you'd only accept the King of the kingdom, if you'd only respond properly to the King of the kingdom, then you would receive the blessings of the kingdom. Ultimately, Jesus wants us to know that our main responsibility is to know the King of the Kingdom. We don't know how this Kingdom grows exactly. We don't see how it grows fully, but we know the King. In verses 22-37, to we see that genuine faith is prepared for the coming Kingdom. Genuine faith is prepared for the coming Kingdom. The disciples are deeply desiring this coming kingdom. Notice verse 22, And He said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Now, what we need to notice here, first of all, is that the audience has changed. Verses 20 and 21, He's talking to Pharisees and responding to their condemnatory question. Now He's talking to the disciples in verse 22. Okay, So you can think believing audience. And here... He prophesies that that there will come a day when the disciples of Christ will long for the coming of the Son of Man, but it won't come. That's what he's saying. He's saying there's going to come a day when when life gets so hard for you, when when, when the, the, the desire to follow God will become so difficult, you will long for the day when the Son of Man will come. But it's not going to come at that time. And we know that He's talking about a future day and not that they're looking back. You know, I wish we had the Son of Man back here like we did before. But rather, they're looking for a future day. And we know that because of verses 24 and 26. He's talking about the end times. We'll come to those here in just a second. In verses 23 and 24, people will make false claims about the arrival of the kingdom. And Jesus says, don't buy into those false claims. When people say that the kingdom is here, don't believe it. And He's going to tell us why. The reason why you don't have to believe and you should not believe those who say that the kingdom is here is because when the kingdom comes, it will be unmistakable. It will be sudden and visible and no one will mistake it for something else. 
that the second coming of Christ will be spectacular, evident, and visual. And so if someone tries to come along and convince you that the Messiah has come and He's established His kingdom, don't buy it because the kingdom will come clearly. The kingdom's coming will be as unmistakable, verse 24, as the light that fills the sky with the lightning. It says the, the lightning fills up the whole sky, the night sky with lightning, so will the Son of Man's coming be. Why is it that the disciples would struggle with such a deep desire? Why might they be swayed by false claims of a kingdom that's not real, a false kingdom? The answer is that the life of a disciple is a life of suffering. And it's easy for us to miss all the signs revealed in the Scripture and then to buy into the false claims of Christ's return. That is, a false Christ's return. Jesus wants them to keep focused and be ready. As Christians, we should not be alarmed at the suffering that comes with being a believer. See, we think, well, all these, all these, uh, these difficulties that I'm facing must mean that, you know, Christ is not coming, or His His coming is delayed, or or maybe He's not concerned about me. And then when those trials go away, now we can start to say, well, maybe the kingdom has come. Don't buy into the false claims of the arrival of the kingdom. You will know when it comes. Verse 25, we must recognize that suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. Verse 25 reads, But first He, that is the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is saying, before the glory of the kingdom, you're going to long for a day when the Son of Man will be here, but before that can come, He must suffer. Suffering is first and then glory. Jesus suffered first, and then He experienced glory. We too, as His followers, should expect to suffer first and then receive glory. There's no skipping that first step. It's part of who we are as a Christian. That if they persecuted Him, they will persecute you. Recognize that suffering precedes glory. Next we see that we must not be blinded to eternal things by focusing on the cloud of the ordinary in verses 26 to 33. We must not be blinded to the most important and the eternal things by focusing on the cloud of the ordinary. Jesus here gives us two examples of judgments that came in the Old Testament. He's saying this is what the final judgment is going to be like as well. Final earthly judgment. First, the example of the wicked in Noah's day, verses 26 and 27. Notice their activity. Verse 27, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. So they're doing just really ordinary activities. Now, uh, certainly God judged them for their wickedness. Remember, Genesis 6 said that they only did evil all the time. Okay, so that God's judging them for evil. But notice the, the things that Jesus highlights are really just ordinary things that we all do in life. It's just part of normal life. It's a, uh, the casual part of life. We don't think too much of it. There's nothing inherently evil about the things that He lists here. And Jesus saying, you know what they were doing during the time that the flood came? They were just focusing on the ordinary things of life, giving no thought to God's claim on their souls. That's what was happening during Noah's day. They were involved in the ordinary and then came the extraordinary. Verse 27, the end of the verse says, 
until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It happened quickly. It was over. The ordinary turned into panic and the panic led to judgment. Example of the wicked in Lot's day. Verses 28 and 29. Notice their activity. Again, just ordinary activities. Verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. Okay, how many of us have done some or all of those things this week? Right? Just ordinary activities that people are involved in. That's what they were doing during the time that the judgment came. But then... Judgment came, verse 29, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. You see, they bought into the lie that how they lived didn't really matter to God and God was going to be fine with it. He wasn't really going to bring down judgment. It's like the argument that Peter makes. I think it's in 1 Peter 3 where he says, you know, people will say, all things are just like they always have been. And Peter says, no, they're not there's been a flood. And we could say, no, there's not. There's been a, a, a judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God, things have not always been the same. The reason we know there's a future judgment is because there's been a past judgment. We know God is going to do it because He has done it. And their judgment would be sudden and final in Lot's day. Now, Jesus is not holding up Noah or Lot as perfect followers of Him. Certainly they were believers, but the point is that they heard that the judgment was coming and they prepared themselves for it. And they were rescued from it. And that actually should help the disciples and us in applying what He's trying to teach about the end times to our lives. It's not about reaching perfection in this life. It's about recognizing that judgment's coming and preparing ourselves for it. So he brings the point home in verses 30 to 33 by giving application for believers. Verses 30 to 33. He says the same thing that happened during the judgments during the time of Noah and Lot will happen at the arrival of the kingdom. Verse 30. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. See the same idea in verse 26. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. See the same idea in verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. So, you follow these examples, see what happened during that time, and that's how it's going to be in the days of the Son of Man. And what was the pattern during the time of Noah and during the time of Lot? They were going about their ordinary lives and they failed to submit themselves to the God who owned them. They failed to prepare themselves for judgment and judgment came and destroyed them. And so what Jesus is saying, listen, when the end times are on the horizon, you need to prepare yourself for judgment. And that means, verses 30 and 31, don't worry about your earthly goods. Don't worry about the ordinary. Recognize that there's something more important than all of those things that fill up our lives. Verse 30, uh, Verse 31, On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. In the end times, people will be going about their ordinary affairs of life, but they're going to ignore, just like in the time of Lot and Noah, 
They're going to ignore the clear message of God about His claim on their life and about the coming judgment and they will not be rescued. They will be destroyed. And so here's what Jesus says to them in verse 31. Drop whatever you're doing and head for refuge in God. Now, homes in Israel at that time had a flat roof and exterior stairs. So when He says, if you're on the rooftop... Don't even bother going into the house. Okay, we, we might think, well, if you're on the rooftop, you kind of have to go inside. Okay, no, this is exterior stairs. Don't even go to gather your things. Just exit immediately. Do not even enter the house. And I'd like to suggest to you that he's not talking about the rapture here. Okay, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Now, when we hear rapture and second coming of Christ, we think those are the same things. But technically, the rapture is a subset of the second coming of Christ the actual second coming of Christ doesn't happen until He touches down His feet on the Mount of Olives, which happens at the battle prior to the battle of Armageddon. Okay? So the rapture, He actually brings His church to meet Him in the air. Okay? That's part of the second coming. It kind of inaugurates the second coming, but His real second coming, the actual second coming, is when He comes back to the earth. You see? What I'm suggesting here is that this is the second coming. This is the part where He actually comes to the earth. This is prior to that. He's saying there's going to be a great tribulation. I think He's focusing primarily on the midpoint of the tribulation and the following, the, the last half of the tribulation. The reason I say that is because if you were to go to Matthew 25, you'd see that this passage, this teaching that Jesus gives here is parallel to the to the teaching in Matthew 25. And there, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, watch out for the abomination of desolation. Does that sound familiar to you? If you've been here on Sunday mornings, it should. The the abomination which causes desolation. It is the blasphemy of the Antichrist that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation when he, after having been raised from the dead, goes into the temple takes down all the sacrifices and the worship of the true and living God, and he sets himself up an idol of himself, and he causes people to to worship that image instead. That's the abomination of desolation. That's what Matthew 25 is talking about. That's the parallel passage to our passage here tonight. And so what I'm saying is, when he says, go to, just leave, go to the hills. Run, flee, don't go into the house. Don't pack a bag. What Matthew's Gospel teaches us is that when this abomination of desolation happens, it will be very clear that He has defied the true and living God and our Savior Christ. And at that time, you need to run for the hills because the Antichrist will hold nothing back at that time because he's going to seek to destroy every single believer on the face of the earth. The second reason I think that this is not referring to the rapture, but rather it's referring to the second part of the tribulation, the end of the judgment on the earth, is because there will be no signs prior to the rapture. No one knows the day or the hour of when it will come, and there's no need for us to run from the rapture, right? There's no need for us to run. We simply go about our lives doing God's service, and Christ will take us to be with Him. Christ will bring us up in the air to meet with Him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. There's no need for us to run from something prior to the rapture. So I don't think this is referring to the rapture here in Luke 17. I think it's referring to the midpoint of the tribulation, 
for tribulation saints that they need to recognize that when judge this, they see this abomination of desolation, they need to run. So, don't worry about your earthly goods. Make sure that you are ready for, or that you are rescued by God from His judgment. Verse 32, Beware of narrowly missing God's rescue. Beware of narrowly missing God's rescue. Probably the second shortest verse in the Bible. I hadn't noticed this before, but remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. The reason for the death of Lot's wife was not that her eyes caught the burning city, but I think the reason that she was destroyed there, turned into a billar of salt, was because she looked back with a deep longing, a deep desire to stay and to continue in the sin that the city offered. And so what Jesus is saying is be willing to give up everything for the sake of being rescued from judgment. Don't be on the brink of being rescued and then turn back. That's Lot's wife. D.A. Carson says it this way, those who lovingly look back to the city of destruction and try to cling to its toys are destroyed with them. Press on then. Invest in heaven's stock and set your sights on the new Jerusalem. How terrible it would be if we were narrowly rescued, but not. If we were narrowly rescued, but instead destroyed. How terrible would it be? See, keep your eyes fixed on what's most important. Don't turn back to the things of this world. In verse 33, Jesus says, remember what is most important. He says, For whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Whoever seeks to keep his self-centered and seemingly secure life will lose that self-centered and secure life. But whoever loses his self-centered life and fixes his eyes on God's Son will gain eternal life. That's the idea there. In verses 34 and 35, we see that we must be aware of the family-dividing nature of judgment. The family-dividing nature of judgment. Here in verses 34 and 35, Jesus gives a warning. But before we look at these verses, notice that verse 36 is in italics or brackets in the New American Standard. And it's completely missing from the New International Version. Verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other be left. What does that tell us? If it's in brackets or in the NIV missing, it tells us, if you look in the margin of your Bible, that the earliest manuscripts do not contain this verse. That means that it was probably added by a scribe who knew the passage from Matthew and wanted to make it fit with the Matthew passage. And so added a verse for clarification. Kind of show, well, I, I know he said this in Matthew, so why wouldn't Luke put it in there? And I would say that there's nothing false about verse 36. Okay, obviously it's in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 40. But I would suggest to you that it's not in the original of Luke's Gospel. So that's why the New American Standard puts it in brackets and the NIV omits it. All right. Now let's look at verses 34 and 35. The content of the warning here is that the judgment will divide even the closest of relationships. The, con- the, the, the judgment will divide even the closest of relationships. One night there will be two in bed, verse 34 says. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two men grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. I don't think this can be referring to the rapture. It does sound like something that would take place at the rapture. But 
Remember, Jesus hasn't talked about the rapture at this point chronologically in His life. Uh, the first time He gives any indication of it is John 14, where He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming again to receive you under Myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Really, the rapture, the, the understanding of the theology of the rapture doesn't begin until 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 with the Apostle Paul. And so I think that in its context, Luke 17 is all talking about the tribulation, the abomination of desolation. And the point is that there's going to be a dividing nature of the judgment. It's going to separate even the closest of people. We must recognize, finally, verse 37, we must recognize the unmistakable unmistakable nature of coming judgment. That was the point of those two previous examples. Right? That people were going through their ordinary life and then they were destroyed. They were going through their ordinary life and then they were destroyed. But it was clear and unmistakable that it was judgment by God. No one questioned, wow, I wonder what just happened. It was judgment. And that's what's going to happen in the end. People will be going about their ordinary life. Judgment will come and no one will question what happened there. They'll know exactly that God was judging the earth. Jesus gives this perplexing prophecy of the coming kingdom in verse 37. Remember, the the Pharisees are asking when this will happen. When's this kingdom coming? I don't see it. I mean, you're talking about this great kingdom. Where is it? Jesus says, I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm here in your midst. Recognize that. Now the disciples ask, where is this kingdom going to be? See what they say in verse 37? Where, Lord? In other words, where is all this judgment going to take place? Will these bodies be judged and destroyed like in Noah's and Lot's days? And Jesus responds by giving this little proverb that says, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered could mean one of two things. One, it could mean that just like if we want to know where death is, we, just, we can look from, from a long distance and see where the vultures are hovering. We know that there's death below. So, Jesus could be saying that if you want to know when the coming judgment is, look for the death. Or He could be saying that with My coming, there will be great joy for those who trust in Me, but death for everyone else that just as sure as vultures come on the bodies of the dead, so will the Son of Man's coming be. You see, when Jesus comes the second time, He's not coming to seek and to save those who are lost. He did that the first time. When Jesus comes the second time, He's coming to judge. He's coming to destroy. And the first time He says, I didn't come with a sword. But the second time, He's coming to destroy. Judgment is guaranteed. And so as Christians, as followers of Christ, of all ages, we must be prepared. Christ's coming guarantees death and resurrection. Christ's coming will arrive with clear and horrendous judgment. And we as believers need to take refuge in the umbrella of God's mercy as expressed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, make sure that you are on the right side. Make sure that you're on the Lord's side. Because Christ's coming 
will not be pretty for those who oppose Him. Christ's sudden return means that we have a choice to make. We need to make a choice today between the eternal and the temporal. What is it that we're going to live for? Are we going to be like the runner on the mountain who just can't see the finish line and says, I can't do it anymore. You know, the, the, it, the temporal, it, it's just eating me up. I can't, the, the pain, the fact that I can't see the end. Or are we going to fix our eyes on the eternal and say, you know what? He's told me that the finish is in view and that it's near. And I just need to keep running. I need to keep pushing through. If Christ is going to return suddenly, then we have a choice to make now about the eternal over the temporal. Let me just conclude by warning you something that you already know, and that is that loving the world is deadly. Loving the world is is deadly. Now, to clarify, when I say the world here, I'm talking about the evil system of values that stands in opposition to God. I hope you recognize that in the Scriptures, the world is talked about in two other ways in addition to that one. One, it's talked about like the earth. God made the heavens and the earth. The world is talked about in that way. The third planet from the sun. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the people of the world. God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the system of evil that is opposed to God. The Scriptures use the word world in all three ways. I'm talking about the this one. The system of evil that's opposed to God. Don't be like Lot's wife who fell in love with the world. Because the more that you love the world, the harder it will be to pull away from it. The truth is that you can't love both God and the world. You realize that? The God and the world are mutually exclusive. They are competing against one another. The more that you love the world, the less you love the Father. 1 John 2.15 says it this way, Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. For whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Paul warned us in Romans 12.2 not to be conformed to the world. We cannot allow this world's evil system to squeeze us into our mold, into its mold. We cannot allow it to assimilate us. We realize that its assimilation of us is almost imperceptible. I mean, think about it. How can you have someone like Lot who goes from a follower of God to one doing such debased things as he does in Sodom and Gomorrah and allowing his family to turn out like they did? How about Solomon marrying all these wives, falling after foreign gods, sacrificing his own children? How can you have someone like that go from devotion to God to standing on the edge of spiritual disaster? You think they woke up one day and said, you know, 15 years down the road, I want to defy God and get as close as I can to spiritual destruction. Is that how sin takes hold of us? No, it happens almost imperceptibly. Over time, you think, God, it's okay. We move on, we move on, and before we know it, we're standing on the cliff that falls down toward an eternal hell. 
we need to turn away from a pursuit of material possessions and pursue a wholehearted devotion to Christ. You cannot love the world nor the things in the world. They are all passing away. And if your grip is on them, you will be destroyed. So we cannot be distracted by the ordinary and the urgent things of life and miss out on the eternal. We cannot be distracted by those things. Christ is coming. And He is going to separate the wheat from the tares. It may not feel like... There's a very clear distinction between who's on God's side and who's not right now, but there will be one day when judgment comes. No one will question who's on the Lord's side at that time. Don't wait for that time. Because how we respond to Him in this lifetime will determine whether we escape God's wrath in the next or whether we perish under it. Let's pray. Father, You know that the grip of this world is very strong and the pull against our souls is very severe. And Lord, sometimes we, we love the things of this world. We love this world and as a result, we hate You. Lord, we need forgiveness for our sins. We need You to point out to us where we fail You. We need to see very clearly the things that are drawing us away. We need believers who are concerned about us, who are praying for us, and who are pointing out the areas of spiritual blindness. And Lord, we need to follow You in in complete faithfulness, complete trust, knowing that although we can't see the finish line, we know that, that there is going to be a great reward at the end. And Lord, we do many times feel like that runner who is just ready to throw in the towel. All of our joints ache sometimes spiritually from the work that we do. And we have the desire to, to give up. So Lord, strengthen our resolve. Or strengthen our grip on You. Remove the sins that so easily beset us so that we can run the race with patience while we endure the cross and despise the shame just like our Savior. Lord, we need Your help. Our church needs You. Come to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.